Last week, we uh, looked at Nehemiah, this cupbearer of the king in the Persian Empire, and how he, he had it on his heart to go to Jerusalem to uh, help the city as it, lie in, as it lay in ruins. So today, we're going to continue Nehemiah chapter 2, starting in verse 11. Now remember, Nehemiah asked the king, he's petitioned the king, the king gave him approval to go on this journey to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Verse 11, So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. Then I went out by night by the valley gate, to the dragon's spring, and to the dung gate. And I expected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down, and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate, and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the walls, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate, and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in. How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burns. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we no longer may suffer derision. And I told them of the good hand, the hand of, of my God that had been upon me for good, and also the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said to me, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. So I don't know about you, but there's a lot of small changes that uh, constantly take place in my life. Uh, on a daily basis, I change the clothes that I wear. I'm sure you do too, hopefully. Uh, on a daily basis, I change what I eat, uh, what I do in my free time. There's a lot of small changes that I make constantly. There's very few big changes that happen in my life. Every once in a while, something big will happen. Uh, hopefully a big change for good. A few years ago, my wife and I uh, went through the Dave Ramsey Financial Peace University seminar. Very convicting for us. Truly changed our lives relative to finances. I don't know about you, any big changes in your lives, big career changes, uh, relationship changes. Maybe you've just recently gotten married, recently had a baby, um, recently moved, recently lost at a job. Big changes in our lives. The most important change is the one that, that, that the last, the ones where at the end of our lives we'll look back and, and we say, wow, that was an amazing change. Those are the big ones and those are the, the most difficult ones. I remember uh, when I was a teenager going to visit the hospital, my grandfather, who I was close with, he had a heart attack. He had, he had been a smoker almost all his life. And uh, he had had a heart attack, and, and he was faced with the reality that he was likely going to die very soon unless he changed his, his health habits. He quit smoking. 
He did. And I remember the, the, the joy in my mom as, as she watched him give up this habit that had plagued him his whole life. This huge change in his life. Well, I don't know where you are, and maybe there's some changes that you know you need to make. Maybe there's some, some things, that, some areas in your life, some habits that you have, sin in your life, ways of relating to others. Big changes that you know God is calling you to, take, to, to, to make. Big changes that need to take place, but things you're hesitant to do. Well, in this passage in Nehemiah chapter 2, we're going to see this big change that, that's coming for Israel. This massive change that's going to affect the entire, it's going to affect the entire city of Jerusalem. Now, as with all big changes, it's a difficult change. It's a costly change. But it's a change that will really set Jerusalem on a different trajectory for making the change. And what I want to do today is I want to study this change. I want to study the different phases uh, leading up to the change and the aftermath of this change of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. And as we study the change that the Jews make, I would like us to consider the changes that we need to make in our own lives. Again, the Bible is not just a, just a textbook. It's not just a history book. It's a history book, true story of things that happened, but it's given to us so that it would transform our lives as well. So we're going to study the, the change of Israel and think through the changes that God is asking us to take place in our own lives. In, in the, the sermon, we're going to look at, first of all, uh, Nehemiah and the inspection of the city. He's going to inspect the walls, first thing. Second thing, we're going to look at his inspiration, the way he inspires the Jews to follow him on this task. And finally, we're going to look at the opposition. As we look at these three different uh, aspects of the story, different points of the drama, I hope that it will enable us to see different dynamics of change so that as we sense God calling us to change, we can answer yes, we can follow him in change. Before we get, get started, let's review where we've been. You know, the Israel, uh, they were taken out of their land, right? Israel was this, um, was this people, this nation, captured by this great Babylonian empire, dragged to exile, and, and the city was, was left in ruins. The walls destroyed, the temples destroyed, the houses destroyed. Only a few poor people are left behind. Well, a period of, of some 50 years go by, and there's a change in leadership in the, in the Babylonian Empire. The Babylonian Empire gets, gets destroyed. The Persian Empire comes and takes over. And Cyrus, uh, the king of Persia, the, the Persian emperor, he allows the exiles to go back to their homeland, to the nation of Israel, where they were exiled from. They return. But when they return, they return to ruins. I don't know if you've ever seen a ruined city, but I remember uh, I, I was traveling through uh, Italy at one point when I was in college, I got to do a study abroad, and we got to go see the city of Pompeii. And uh, just ruins, just litter pillars, and it was, we were visiting all over Europe, so we wanted to hit the hot spots, and, and we saw Pompeii. Just this, just this city of ruins. Ash, stone, rubble everywhere. Well, as the exiles go back, that Jerusalem is in rubble, it's in ruins. This is what they're returning to. And Nehemiah, okay, so there's Israel in, in the land of Israel. But back in the, in the Persian capital, Nehemiah is this guy who's the cupbearer to the king. He is a Jew who's been exiled, and part of his job in exile is to serve the king. He's a cupbearer. He takes the king his wine, and he tastes it to make sure it's not poisoned. He serves the king. Well, one day he got up the courage because he'd heard the reports of how bad it was in Israel, in Jerusalem. 
And he's devastated when he hears the reports of how it's broken down, it's ruined, the gate's destroyed. And he goes to the king and he begs the king to let him go and rebuild the city. Well, against all odds, the king says yes, despite the fact that in telling him yes, he's reversing his own decree. Artaxerxes years earlier had said, you may not rebuild the city of Jerusalem. That was the royal decree. Nehemiah comes and changes everything. The king allows him to go, and he travels. And so that's where we pick up. Verse 11 says this, So I went to Jerusalem, and I was there for three days. Now, uh, scholars suggest it's probably a four-month journey, possibly more. And while he's on this four-month journey from the Persian Empire, from the capital, to Jerusalem, he's going through these different provinces, and, and he's getting inspected along the way. These governors of different provinces, are want to, they want to know what he's about. So he has to show him letters from the king saying, this is the king's task. I'm given permission to go to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. Not only does he go through these provinces, but he makes a stop off of the king's forest to actually collect timber, to collect supplies, to carry with him on this journey to Jerusalem so that they can rebuild the walls. Four-month journey, finally gets there, and it says he was there for three days. Now, this is referring to the initial camping out. He travels for four months, he gets there, and he stops for three days, and he camps out, probably exhausted, resting. Uh, Ezra, earlier in, in the book of Ezra, he does the same thing. He's this four-month journey, he gets there before he does anything else. He just camps out, he rests for three days. And you can imagine what Nehemiah is feeling, right? He has uh, effectively asked the king for permission to rebuild his city, which is on his heart, that is his passion, the king gives him permission. He's journeyed successfully four months collecting the supplies he needs to rebuild the city, to rebuild the wall. And he is there. He has made it. But yeah, Nehemiah is a great leader. He's very astute. And he knows that in many ways the greatest task is in front of him. Yes, he's, he's accomplished wonderful things to this point, but this, it's another one of those points of no returns, this critical point where not only does he have to convince the king, Artaxerxes, this one person, to rebuild the wall, now his task is he has to convince thousands of Jews to join him in the task of rebuilding the city. And as we're going to find out, this is a costly endeavor. This is not just some simple, oh, sure, I'll do that. I'll give up a Saturday to help you rebuild the wall that encompasses the entire city. Now, this was a, this was a month, month-long process, many months, dedicated to this journey, if, if, if this, this endeavor, if it was going to happen. So what he does is he, he decides to go on the secret mission, the secret journey. He doesn't tell anybody what he, is, what, he's, what he does, what he's about when he gets there. He doesn't tell anyone his mission. He's got a secret mission. He comes, he shows up with his royal entourage, and people are wondering, what is going on? Why is Nehemiah here? He doesn't tell anybody. Instead, in the middle of the night, when everyone else is asleep, he gets up with just a few men, gets on an animal, probably a donkey, and he rides around the wall of Jerusalem to inspect it. This broken down wall, this rubble that surrounds the city, in order to do this job effectively, he's got to inspect it. I've already told you that the, the youth team is in Belize right now. And on Sundays, what they're doing right now is they're probably actually worshiping with the, with the local congregation. Then later on in the day, what they're going to do is they're going to inspect the task. They've got a work site where they have the entire week they're going to be de- dedicated to this work, to repair work, to rebuilding possibly houses, possibly the church grounds. 
first thing they do is inspect it. They spend time walking around, kind of figuring out what do they need to do, figuring out what supplies do they need to accomplish the task. Well, this is what Nehemiah does. He, he goes out to inspect the city. You can imagine what, what the task was like, right? He's riding around on a donkey, and it's at night. Maybe there was moonlight, maybe there wasn't. So he's got to inspect this, this wall around the entire city, walking over rubble, tripping, his donkey probably losing his footing. Uh, every five or ten minutes, you can imagine him getting off the donkey to go up closer to the wall to inspect, taking notes so that he'll know how to effectively lead the people to rebuild this wall. This is what's before him. It tells us this route. There's a lot of different, uh, there's a lot of, let's, let's, let's see the slide up here. Um, all right, so this is the, this is a rough drawing uh, showing you the, the, the wall surrounding the temple, uh, surrounding the city of Jerusalem. And he starts out of the valley gate, and um, we don't know all of these specific things it talks about. We don't know where the dragon spring is. Uh, scholars think the dung gate is at the very bottom, even below the mountain gate. It's kind of the, the, the lowermost part of the city. It's the dung gate, and so you can imagine what goes on there. Is refuse is thrown out at that point, so it's the lowest point of the city. So he travels along. The, the, it goes from the valley gate, dung gate, fountain gate, and then he goes back up, and at some point... Um, he, he realizes, you know, the, the rubble is too great. Uh, it's so broken down. The job is so great that he actually has to turn around. Now, likely, the easternmost part, that was actually probably the most critical part for him to inspect. You see, that, that part was terraced. So whereas other parts uh, of the city have the wall kind of standing up, built on level ground, this part is terraced. And so uh, the rubble would have been greater there. And so in order to do this, he has to actually get up over there and actually inspect it. He comes back, and again, he reiterates, no one knew what I was doing. None of the officials, the Jews, the people, the leaders, no one knew what I was doing. He gets back, taking his notes, making his plan, preparing his speech, which he's going to give the next morning. Now, before we get into this speech, before we get into the, this, this inspirational speech that Nehemiah gives the people, let's consider Nehemiah's work here. We've already talked about last week how Nehemiah was this hero. He, when no one else was willing to step up, he stepped up and he, he at the risk of his life, went to the king, begging the king to allow him to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall. No one else was doing that. No one else was writing letters imploring the king to rebuild the city. No one else was sticking their neck out so that this city could return to its glory days. No one else was traveling the four miles, or excuse me, the four, the four month long journey collecting supplies to gather supplies to prepare the work. No one was doing this, only Nehemiah. No one else, none of the other Jews were getting up and who were, who, were ga- who were going around at this, this really dangerous secret mission at night to, to inspect the sea. No one else was doing it. Only Nehemiah was doing that. Well, why is that important? Because nothing would have happened without Nehemiah. In a, in a minute, we're going to go to the second part, this inspirational speech. And, and when Nehemiah gives this inspirational speech, you do see buy-in at some point, all right? There's a uh, we've already read it, so it's not a, it's not a spoiler alert. The, the people do uh, buy and they agree to the task. But before they agree to the task, none of this would have ever happened if Nehemiah didn't start the work. He's the engine getting the car moving. He is the reason that this happens. 
Last week, we talked not only about how Nehemiah was a hero, but how Nehemiah as a hero pointed to Christ, who is the hero for us. We talked about last week how just like Israel, you and I, we see we're not the hero, we're not Nehemiah who comes to the rescue, we're Israel who's laying in ruins. We're sitting there broken down, vulnerable, helpless, unable to change. And Christ, like Nehemiah, steps up and he says, I'm not going to let you wallow in misery. I am going to come and I am going to do the work for you. I am going to get this project going to rebuild your life, to give you a new life. And that's exactly what Christ does. You probably know the story, many of you, right? We were created, when God originally created mankind, he created us to love God, to worship God, to be with God. Instead of loving God, though, mankind left God, abandoned God, left the relationship like a broken marriage. And as a result of that broken marriage, there was irreparable damage done, not only to the relationship between God and man, but man himself was broken. We were created to worship God. We don't function well in any other setting other than worshiping God. Death comes into the scene. No longer is it paradise, this perfect world where we get to experience the blessings of God. Now death and misery and brokenness and loneliness enter in to the equation. It's where Israel was at this point in the story, but this is where the Bible says all mankind is under sin. But just like Nehemiah comes to rescue the Israelites, God says, I'm not going to leave you to wallow and die. I'm going to send my son, who's the master builder, and he's going to come, and he knows exactly how to rebuild the lives of his people, how to rebuild the church. He knows the plan. He comes, lives under the law, lives a perfect life. What you and I can't do, what we don't do, worship God perfectly, obey God perfectly. That's what Christ did. Not only that, but at the end of his life, any lawbreaker is subject to death. You and I are lawbreakers. And so someone has to pay the penalty. Christ was willing to be our substitute. To do this for us, Nehemiah stepped in when the city of Israel could not step in for itself, could not save themselves. Christ does that for us. He is our leader. Silly and I, uh, every once in a while, we'll, we'll uh, look at a Netflix uh, series and we'll, we'll get excited. We love documentaries. And there's this one documentary that uh, sometimes is pretty silly, but sometimes it's exciting. It's Locked Up Abroad. I don't know if you've ever seen it. But uh, oftentimes, people get in trouble for really foolish things like trying to smuggle drugs. Not recommended. And, uh, the, and if you don't take my word for it, watch the show. Uh, people get into all kinds of trouble for going to foreign countries, uh, drug running. Sometimes, though, people are innocent. They're just traveling and they get captured and there's this... There's this theme of these terrorists come. Either, typically, people get in trouble one or two ways. They're drug smuggling or terrorists come. That's the, that's the show in a nutshell. And if a terrorist comes, uh, you know, sometimes what will happen is these, these, these terrorists will come into this resort and, t- and capture the people and take them off into the wilderness, into the jungle. And they're marching for days under awful circumstances. Oftentimes, many people, the weak, are dying along the way. It's tragic. Every once in a while, there's this amazing escape story where, despite the odds, someone escapes and flees the terrorist group and makes their way into the jungle, fleeing the terrorists. But now they've got a whole other problem, right? They're in the middle of a jungle. 
thick jungle. You can't see the sun because of the, the, the overgrowth. You can't, you can't see where you're going. You have no idea how to get to where you, where you need to go. And of course, there are dangerous animals in the jungle. There are terrorists in the jungle. You could wander back. You're lost. Oh, imagine yourself in that scenario. I just extreme scenario. You're sitting here in air-conditioned, uh, you know, air-conditioned building. The seats aren't that comfortable, but they're more comfortable than you would be if you're in the middle of a jungle. So imagine yourselves in the middle of a jungle, and uh, you're lost. You're without hope. Now imagine that there is a guide there. Perhaps the guide has escaped the terrace too. And, and unlike you, the guide knows the journey back to safety. Unlike you, the, the, the guide has a machete, and he knows how to navigate the undergrowth. Unlike you, the, the, the guide knows how to avoid the dangerous animals. He knows where the terrorists are and how to, to flee them. Your life depends on the guide. In life, you and I, we are, um, like Israel, we're broken down. Like Israel, we're lost oftentimes. Uh, if you've never experienced the sensation of being overwhelmed with life. Life is just too much. What's asked of you is just too much. Or you're just overwhelmed sometimes by the brokenness in this world, by frustrations, by regrets. If at some point that sensation doesn't well over you, then probably you aren't looking hard enough. Probably at some point you're, you're, just, you're distracting yourself. You're not paying attention to life because life it's dangerous. Life in a broken world is frustrating. Life in a broken world is overwhelming. Life in a broken world oftentimes is like being in the middle of a jungle, not knowing where to go. But the key is for us Christians is that we know that we have a guide. We have someone who has been willing to say, yeah, I'm going to come in to your danger and I'm going to lead the way out. Nehemiah did this for the nation of Israel. Christ does this for us. We're going to continue looking at how Jerusalem, how the, how the city of Jerusalem responded. So first of all, there's the inspection. Second of all, there is this inspiration, this inspirational speech. Nehemiah comes as the leader, as the rescuer, as the guide, allowing Israel to, to flee its dangerous circumstances. Now he's been four months fasting and praying before coming to Jerusalem. He makes a request to the king. He goes to Jerusalem on this four-month journey. There's another moment of truth. Because he's got to convince these exiles, these, these insecure people, these poor people, to this huge endeavor of rebuilding the wall. Verse 17 says, Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burns no longer. Oh, come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. Now, great leaders often have a gift of persuasion. They're able to come in and convince people to a course of action. Unite people and get the ball moving. And that's exactly what Nehemiah does. And he does it in three ways. First of all, he reminds them how bad the circumstances are. He tells them, look around you. You see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates burned. Now you might ask yourself, why does he have to remind them of this. They can look around. Physically, they have a reminder of the ruins that they live in every single day. Why does he point this out? Is it redundant? Well, I'll suggest probably that the people of Israel, these exiles, it's not that they didn't see, it's that they didn't want to think about how bad their circumstances are. And I can relate, you probably can too. Sometimes it's easier just not to think about the bad things in life. 
to ignore the things in your life that aren't going so well. Just don't think about it. Think about happy thoughts, right? Move on. Distract yourselves with entertainment. Distract yourself with relationships. It's easy not to remember what we were created for. Israel was created to be the city on the hill. Israel was created to be the special people of God who were reflecting his glory, who were beautiful, who were holy, who were blessed of the Lord. That was their created intent. That was who they were by rights. And yet they were living as insecure exiles in a ruined city. I imagine that the way they did that was to stop thinking about how bad the situation was. It's not that bad, right? We've still got a land. We can farm. We've still got a land. We can raise a family. Yeah, it's broken down, but uh, as long as we don't mess with other people around us, they're probably not going to come and invade us and kill us and take us away. Probably not. I think it's easy for us to sometimes get accustomed to mediocrity, part of sinful nature, we can get accustomed to things not being the way they should be because we just don't think about it. You and I, it's easy for us to to not think about God's calling upon our lives as, as new creations, people who are called to reflect his glory in our relationships. It's easy for us as fathers to not think about how God calls us to be spiritual leaders in the household, loving our wives, loving our children sacrificially. It's easy for us as mothers, to not think about how high the calling is of raising children, of praying constantly for patience, for enduring the suffering that goes along with motherhood. It's easy for us to not think about as friends the way that we are called to spur one another on to godliness, to love and good deeds constantly. It's easy for us as Christians to not think about how we are called to be a light to those around us, to reach out, to be leading, to be loving our neighbors, our family members, our friends who don't know Christ. It's easy for us to not think about the high calling that God has placed upon our lives. But the reality is this is who we are in Christ. Created to image God, created to reflect God, created to be a light in a dark world, created to be salt, created to point people to Christ. New life, resurrected life. This is our calling, and yet it's so easy to just not think about it, to settle for mediocrity. Nehemiah comes and he says, look, look at how bad it is. Look at reality. Wake up. Secondly, he challenges not only to look at how bad it is, secondly, he calls them to do something about it. Come, he says, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. Nehemiah says, look, this is how bad it is. The gates are burned. The walls are broken down. At any moment, we could be invaded. We are vulnerable. We are sitting ducks. We are in misery. We are ashamed. But it doesn't have to be this way. Let's do something about it. Let's change, Nehemiah says. They had the the means to rebuild the wall. They had the physical strength. They had two hands. They had supplies around them. They had the ability to rebuild the wall if they had it in their hearts. The problem was it was costly. You see, these were men and women who had other things to do. They had families to raise. They had farms to to till. They had animals to take care of. Many were merchants with a trade to think about. Many were specialized there were goldsmiths, metal workers among them. They had things to do. 
to rebuild the wall was no small task. That was an enormous feat that would set them back probably years in their occupations, in their families. Working double overtime to accomplish this work. This was a hard work. And they knew that once they built, people would not like it. Enemies around them would not like it. They knew the cost. Nehemiah challenges them. Let's get out of this miserable circumstance we're in. Let's change. So he tells them to to think about it. He reminds them of how bad it is. He calls them to change, but then he gives them a hope. Verse 18 says, And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also the words that the king had spoken to me. Consider what Nehemiah had done at this point. He's kind of like King Midas. You know, King Midas, anything he touches turns to gold. Well, at this point, through God's blessing, everything Nehemiah does prospers. He's blessed, right? He, first of all, is enabled to be the cupbearer of the king, which is no small— I mean, that, that was, a, was a respected position. Uh, he is the servant of the king. He has a good relationship with the king. He has the boldness to ask the king to, for permission to go. The king grants his permission. Not only that, but he gives him protection. He gives them official letters from Persia. He gives them a military entourage. He gives them supplies to build. The hand of the God of God was upon Nehemiah the entire way. And what he is implying here is that the same God that provided for him, the same God that prospered his journey thus far, will continue to be faithful and prosper his journey to prosper the task that's before them. He tells them, look around you. We are in misery, but we can change, and our God is faithful to accomplish the task. Guys, you and I, um, like Israel, we have a leader who has come, and he has begun the work for us. He has saved us, not because of anything we have done. Christ came, and he did the work for us. Nehemiah, everything he has done to this point, this was all him. Israel just sat back, and watch their leader come in, their hero come in and save them from misery. You and I sit back and watch Christ save us freely through grace. He comes and he pays the price for sin so that we don't have to. He lives the good life that we can't. Because of that, through our effort, through nothing of our own effort, we are brought into a relationship with the Lord. And once you and I are brought into a relationship with the Lord, once we are given this Christian identity, we have this Christian life to lead. And guess what? Christ looks at us and he says, come and follow me. Come join me in the work that I am doing in your life. Not work unto salvation, but work unto sanctification. A work, a work of pleasing God throughout the rest of this life. As Christians, you and I are called to a good work of growing in godliness from this point forward until we die becoming more and more like Christ. And that is a work that we join God in. Christ is is like the the leader, the guide in the jungle. Remember, the the jungle guide who comes in, he knows the trail. He's going to trailblaze. He's going to take his machete and, and kind of cut the way through safety, avoiding the dangers all around. But he turns around and he beckons. He says, come follow me. Christ has begun a good work in our lives. A good work of sanctification, a good work of changing us to be more like him, a good work of changing our relationships, a good work of changing how we engage in our workplaces, in our occupations, with our families, with our friends, with our free time. 
He has begun a good work in our lives. And Philippians 1.6 reminds us that if he has begun a good work, he's going to continue it. He's going to carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And he calls us to join him. Guys, consider your lives. I don't know what areas of your lives need change. The great thing about being a Christian is that we can be honest about our shortcomings. We don't have to pose and posture and pretend like we have it all together. Because that's not the point. The point is that Christ had it all together for us. And on, because of what he did, because he was our substitute, we get to have a relationship with God. We can be honest about our shortcomings. And because we know that Christ gives us the Holy Spirit, we have the ability to to boldly say, yes, I am a sinner, but I am trusting that God is doing a work in me, leading me in repentance, leading me in change, leading me in transformation. I want to invite you to consider what areas of your life need change. And something does. Biblically speaking, something needs change. Where is God leading you in change today? There's this great quote by Augustine of Hippo, and he says this, Hope has two beautiful daughters. Their names are anger and courage. Anger at the way things are, and courage to see that they do not remain the same. Godly contentment in our circumstances is a wonderful thing. But sometimes God calls us to a a godly, a holy discontentment with the way things are in our lives, with the way that we are in our lives. What areas of sin is God calling you to change, to repent of? Like Israel, it's easy to sit back and say, you know what, it's just not that bad. It's okay. God says, no, you were created for more than that. You were created to be holy. You were created to be a leader. You were created to be a saint. You were created to lead others to my love. You were created for a good work of becoming more like Christ. Get off your rear and join me in the work. Because of Christ's work, because of what he has already done, we have a hope that we can change, that we can grow, that we can join him in his work of sanctification. I would invite you to consider where in your life needs changing. Be discontent with that. Be angry at the things in your life that aren't right. With the things in yourself that aren't right, your apathy, your lust, your deceit, your, your anger, your pride. Be discontent, but then be courageous because Christ is calling you to follow him in a good work of change in your life. So first we see inspection. Secondly, we see inspiration. Thirdly, we see opposition. Verse 19 says this, But when Sambalot the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite, Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us. And they said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper, and we as servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or no right or no claim to Jerusalem. We see what's happened. There's a need. There's a leader. There's an inspirational speech. There's a great pep rally, and the people say, yes, yes, we will rise up and build. Yes, we will strengthen ourselves for the good work. And as soon as they begin, the enemies come out of the woodwork. The enemies, like, like pests, like vermin, they come out, they scurry out as soon as the work starts. And they start taunting the people. They start jeering on They despise the people, it says. And remember, many of these people who are doing the work, who are strengthening themselves, who are preparing for the good work of rebuilding the wall, just years ago, they had tried it and they had failed miserably. 
because King Artaxerxes has commanded them to stop. Many of them had experienced the futility of doing really hard work for months and months and seeing nothing come of it. And these enemies threaten the same reality. Here we go again. What are we doing? Why, why are we listening to Nehemiah? This is pointless. This is hopeless. Because you and I, we have enemies as Christians. The Bible makes it very clear that we are living uh, in, a, in a wartime. This is not peacetime, and we shouldn't have a peacetime mentality. This is a wartime that you and I live in. You see, Christ came and he ushered in a new reality, but he will return. And one day we will be within, in heaven. And when we are with heaven, then it will be peace. Then it will be paradise. Then all will be as it should be. But until that moment, we live in the in-between. And the in-between is a world where there are enemies. Satan is a, is a real individual who does come and he, and he, he threatens the work of Christ. He comes and he would see, love to see nothing more than, than the, the church crash down, than individuals be taken away. This is his goal. Not only is Satan an enemy, but the sin that lies within us. You and I have indwelling sin, even as Christians. If you are a Christian here today, then God has begun a good work in you, but there is sin left. And that sin rises up constantly. Every day there's a battle against sin. Not only sin, but the world itself. We live behind enemy lines. This world does not like Christ. This world oftentimes does not like Christians. And yet, the world not only assaults us actively, but it tempts us constantly into buying into this world, into its worldview, to buying into its value system, to exchanging the glories of living for God for the false glories of living for this world. It's the world that lulls us into believing that mediocrity is okay. It's the world that lulls us into believing that not living up to God's call in our lives is okay. Because we live behind enemy lines. We live in a wartime, spiritually speaking. But our hope is in Christ. When the enemies come to taunt, to jeer, to threaten the people of Israel... Who stands up? Do the people of Israel, do the Jews stand up and start, start jeering back? Do the Jews stand up for themselves? No, Nehemiah does. Nehemiah, the leader, the one who began the work, the one who prepared the work, the one who inspected the work, the one who inspired his people to begin the work. When the enemies come, he protects, he sustains, he makes sure that the work that he begins is carried to completion. And guys, that is Jesus. Our hope, despite the enemies around us, despite the enemy within, Jesus is greater. Jesus is more powerful. And Jesus is faithful and committed to his work. And that's us. He has begun a good work in us. And he will carry it on to completion. And he beckons us to join him in the work. Where is God calling you to change? Where is God calling you to a courageous, a courageous change, a costly change, a change that means that you have to leave things behind to follow Christ? This is our life as Christians. Not in order to gain salvation, but because salvation has come freely, graciously. Christ calls us to join him, to follow him in this good work. Let's pray. And Christ, uh, God, thank you for this work that you've begun. Thank you for... Your faithfulness, thank you for uh, the work that you have started. 
I thank you for stories like Nehemiah, true stories which remind us of the faithfulness and the power of our leader. God, I pray that we would be attentive to the things, the areas in our lives that need change, the areas that you're calling us to follow you out of. Lord, I thank you for the perfect work of Christ and his, his atoning sacrifice that draws us into a relationship with you. And I pray that if anyone is here who's never experienced fully giving over themselves to Christ so that they could be in a new relationship, I pray that they would consider that, that they would follow Christ into a new relationship. For those of us who have been following Christ, I pray that we would have the courage to follow him into new areas of obedience, new areas of repentance. And God, I thank you that despite the enemies that surround us, we have hope that Christ is greater, that Christ is faithful, and that Christ will finish his work. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.